It's wonderful to be back with you again. Before we read the Word, let me just draw your attention to the passage we're going to be looking at and um, outline it for you so that you know where we're going. If you look at Hebrews 4.15, that's really the heart of this passage and of the message this morning. And around it, you will see two applications. The, the author of Hebrews is, is really preaching a sermon in this what we call a letter or a book. It's really, when, when, you, when you read it out loud, it feels like a sermon. And in this section of the sermon, his main point is that Jesus can sympathize with you. And he makes two specific applications of that, one in verse 14 and one in 16. He says the first application is don't stop confessing Jesus. Keep, keep on trusting Jesus. And then in verse 16, the application, keep on going to the Lord in prayer. He'll hear your prayer. So his two practical applications of the truth are to keep on believing in Jesus and to keep on praying to the Lord. But this astounding statement that he makes in verse 15 begs for some explanation. And he gives that explanation to you in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. When he says, Jesus is able to sympathize with your weakness, I think almost every Christian in the room is silently saying in our heads and hearts, how? <laughs> how, can, how can Jesus sympathize with my weakness? I'm a sinner. I lose to temptation all the time. I fail constantly in my desire to grow in grace. How can Jesus, who never sinned, possibly sympathize with me? The author of Hebrews knows you're thinking that. By the way, you know he knows you're thinking that by the way he says it in verse 15. L look at what he says. You do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Now, why does he say you don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weakness? Because he knows that you think that he's unable to sympathize with your weakness. That's why he says it that way. And so he spins verses 1 to 10 explaining how. Verses 1 to 6, he gives one part of the argument. Verses 7 to 10, he gives a second part of the argument. But I've got some bad news for you. His arguments both entail paradoxes. He's, he's going to say things that blow your mind in both arguments. But we're going to look at this passage today. Now, it's been the habit in the past at Clemson Press to stand for the reading of Scripture. So why don't you stand with me and let's hear God's Word together. This is the Word of God in Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that he may receive that that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men 
is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Let's pray and ask for his help as we study the word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So speak to us, Lord, today by your word, your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. This is an enormously important point that the author of Hebrews wants to bring home to his hearers, and that means you and me. God wants you to believe that Jesus is able to sympathize with you. That does not come naturally. By the way, you can can prove that in Christian history. Christians have struggled to believe this. One of the reasons that one part of the church for many thousands of years came up with the idea of the intercession of Mary and of the saints is because it could not believe that Jesus could truly sympathize with us. The idea was something like this. Well, who could be more sympathetic to you than your mama? So if your mama would be sympathetic to you, how about Jesus' mama? He'd be more, she'd be more sympathetic to you than Jesus. And so the, 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 the whole idea of the intercession of the saints was built on a suspicion that Jesus himself is not capable of being sympathetic with these people. It's really hard for us to believe that. That Jesus, who is sinless, pure, undefiled, never failed in the face of temptation, is capable of sympathizing with us in our weaknesses, our defilement, our impurity, and our failing in the face of temptation. But that is what this passage is saying. Jesus is able to sympathize with you. 
And that really is hard to believe. We, you know, we understand this at, at the human level, don't we? You know, when, when you failed in a particular subject, do you go for sympathy to the guy or gal in class who is the top of the class in that subject? No, you go to your buddy who also failed in that subject. That's where you go for sympathy. You don't go to the top of the class. When I was in graduate school, the, the, the man that taught me Greek was naturally good at languages. Uh, he had graduated in classics. He was an archaeologist as well as a New Testament scholar. He spoke in about 11 different ancient Near Eastern languages, and he could not conceive of a human being that couldn't learn languages. Now, I had studied Latin since the time I was in high school. I'd even done a little bit of classical Greek in college, and I'd studied Spanish in college. So I wasn't completely terrible at language, but it required some effort. And when you would ask him a question in class, he would look at you like, I cannot possibly conceive how somebody would need to ask that question. And then here's what he would do. He would repeat what he had just said louder, like my problem was hearing. No, no, the problem was not that I couldn't hear you. The problem is I had no idea what you were saying. Could you please explain this to me in a different way? But because of the fact that he was so good at languages, he really did have a hard time understanding how people that were not naturally good at languages needed help in learning languages. Contrast that to Miles Van Pelt. Miles Van Pelt teaches languages for Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, and Miles has been published in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He's, he's, he's taught all of those courses, and his students love him. And I think one of the reasons why, he's not only a good teacher, but one of the reasons these students love him is this. When he was a student learning the languages, he was not a good student. It did not come easily to him. He really had to work to learn the languages. And so constantly, he, uh, consequently, he has a heart for the C-minus student. You know, it's easy, it's easy for professors to love your A students. It's easy for a professor to love the A students. But Miles has a heart for the C-minus student because he struggled in learning the languages himself. And so consequently, all of his students come out of his class appreciating him and his form of teaching, and a lot of it is he is able to sympathize with what they're going through. So again, I ask you the question, how in the world is it that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses? That's the grand declaration of verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. How is it that Jesus is able to sympathize with your weaknesses? The author of Hebrews begins to answer that question in the very next sentence. Look at what he says. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So, in, in other words, he says, Jesus is able to sympathize with you because he has been tempted like you. Now, that, that begins to help me. 
That begins to help me understand how Jesus can be sympathetic with me because he's been tempted like me. By the way, that is not a claim that Jesus has experienced every unique type of temptation that we experience. For instance, I am sure that there are some temptations that are unique to women who are expecting. And Jesus was never a woman who was expecting. And so whatever those temptations are, Jesus didn't experience that kind of temptation. But he was tempted along the whole range of temptations that humans experience. And let's face it, all temptation, when you boil it down, all temptation is pretty simple. All temptation tempts us to not trust that God is good or that his will is good. All temptation tempts us to not trust that God is good or that his will is good. And Jesus has been tempted in that way in an extraordinary way, as we're going to see later in the message this morning from the very passage, especially when we get to verses 7 and following. That's, that's the fundamental aspect of temptation. We're tempted not to believe that God is good and that God's will is good. That You will find that in every temptation you have ever experienced. That's going to be a part of it. That, that you have a hard time believing that God is good and that his will is good. And therefore, you decide you're going to do something other than what he's told you to do because you think that will be better for you. In other words, you think that your will is better for you than God's will is better for you. And underneath that is the supposition that you are better than God. That you would treat yourself better than God is treating you. And, and therefore, you're going to go a different direction than he has said in his word. That's a part of every temptation that we experience. By the way, that was a part of the original temptation, right? You know, the, the, the serpent says to Eve, let me tell you why God doesn't want you to take that fruit. The reason that God doesn't want to, you to take that fruit is he knows that if you take it, you'll become like him. Now, what's the serpent saying? The serpent is saying, Eve, God is not good. And his will is not good. The reason he's given you that command is because he doesn't care about your best interest. And the command is actually something that is about him. It's not about your best interest. So if you really want to be like God, you need to break his will. You need to break his command. You need to break his word. That's in the original temptation. And Adam and Eve fell for it. But if you think about, if you think about our temptations... Every single one of them is like that. Every single one of them has that temptation as a part of it. So Jesus, in his life, experienced that particular temptation. By the way, isn't it interesting that both Matthew and Luke record Jesus being directly and specifically singled out by Satan for temptation? But whereas Adam was tempted in a perfect garden, where was Jesus tempted? In the wilderness. 
Whereas Adam was tempted on a full stomach, where was Jesus tempted? Having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Whereas Adam was tempted once and immediately fell, Jesus was tempted three times and he passed the test every time, quoting scripture with flying colors. So the, the, the point of Matthew and Luke to you is Jesus has been directly assaulted by Satan with temptation, yet without sin. But it's that yet without sin that gets me, isn't it? Right? So how, how can he... I get that he's been tempted like me, but he's not failed like me. He's not given in to temptation like me. He's not fallen flat on his face. How can he sympathize with me? That's what the author of Hebrews is going to explain to you in verses 1 to 10. And here's the first thing that he says. Look, look with me at verse 1. Every high, priest is chosen, uh, uh, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So n notice what the, what the author of Hebrews starts out telling you. In, he says, in the Old Testament... When God appointed priests, notice that he did not appoint angels to be priests. He appointed men to be priests. Men who struggle with the same sins and temptations of the people of God. He, he appointed men to be the representatives of men before God. Now, pause, is that not kind of, a, is that not kind of God? God says, who, who am I going to appoint to represent my people to me in their sin? I'm going to appoint men that understand what it's like to live in their skin. People that know what it is to be beset with weakness. That's the kind of person I'm going to appoint. For, and we're told he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. But again, that sentence starts me asking, well, hold on. Jesus isn't beset with weakness. Jesus was perfect. He didn't sin. How can he deal gently with me? The author goes on to say that no one takes this honor for himself only when called by God. And really from verses 4 to 6, he's explaining to you that just like the Old Testament priests were called by God, so Jesus was called by God. So here's what the author of Hebrews wants you to know. He wants you to know that the same God that appointed men who were sinful and weak like you in the Old Testament to be priests appointed Jesus. Now if God in his goodness appointed priests in the Old Testament who could sympathize with you, do you think that God in his goodness who appointed Christ would appoint a high priest who wouldn't be able to sympathize with you? You see where the author of Hebrews is going here. You've got to, you've got to realize that if God was good enough in the Old Testament to appoint priests that could sympathize with you, that that's not going to get worse with Jesus. That what's the, what is the word that is repeated more than any other word in the book of Hebrews? 
better. The, the word better is repeated over and over in the book of Hebrews. And, and the point is what? Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than anything. And so the author of Hebrews has already trained you to think in these terms. If God did something that was gracious to help you in the Old Testament, it's not going to get worse in the New Testament. It's going to be better. But you're still left scratching your head. So how, how could it be then that Jesus is able to sympathize with me since he himself is not a sinner, since he himself is not ignorant and wayward. How can he sympathize with me? And then he begins to answer that question in a second part of chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. Listen to what he says. And I want you to go ahead and start asking yourself, what passage is he referring to here? What event in the life of Christ is he referring to here? Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. What event is he talking about? What passage is in the mind of the preacher as he preaches this message? It's the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? When, when Jesus cried tears and sweat as with drops of blood as he interceded, and what did he ask God? If it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, that's the heart of it, isn't it? That's the heart of it. One of the greatest temptations we face is when God says no. You know, you, you, you pour out your prayers, Lord, would, would you just let my child live? I'm thinking of David and Jill right now, and they're praying for their four-year-old boy. Would you, he's got cancer. Would you just let him live? And the Lord's answer to that prayer was, no. No. And that's hard. It's a, see, that's a good thing to pray. Lord, heal my, heal my boy from cancer. That's a good thing to pray. But what happens when the answer is no? Here's, I just want you to hear this. Your Savior understands that. He, he prayed a prayer about the most unimaginable suffering ever experienced by a human being, and God's answer to him was no. I, I, I will not let this cup pass from you. I will not take this cup from you. But I will answer the second part of your prayer. Nevertheless, not your will, 
but my will be done. You've never gotten a no that Jesus doesn't understand. And he understands it better than you understand it. And, and his very strength makes that no harder, not easier. You know, he, 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 what did Jesus say? In John, he says, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me. He loves to do God's will, but here he is looking at the cross, and he says, Father, I know what your will entails, and so I want to pray this prayer. If it's possible, don't make me go through this. And the answer is, no. I sent you to go through this. You came to go through this. The only way that they will ever be freed from sin is if you go through this. So I'm going to answer the second part of your prayer. Nevertheless, not your will, but my will be done. Jesus, he understands no. He, he understands how that feels. He understands where you are. And friends, that's, that's right at the heart of every temptation, isn't it? Whether we're going to yield our wills to God's. That's at the heart of every temptation. And Jesus understands that better than any of us in this room. He never sinned, but he understands that better than any of us in this room. Nobody will ever go to Jesus and say, but Jesus, you don't understand how hard it was for me to accept the will of God. <laughs> really? Really? You don't think I understand how hard it is for you to accept the will of God? Really? The author of Hebrews is saying, understand that Jesus understands what it's like to hear no in the answer to your prayers. A good prayer, a godly prayer, a reasonable prayer. No. And then he's not done. He's going to blow your mind again. Look at verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. And then just listen to these, phrase, these words, and being made perfect. Now, there you're, in one sentence, he's going to blow your mind twice. What do you mean he learned obedience? How does a perfect person learn obedience? And what do you mean he was made perfect? How does a perfect person be made perfect? Here's, here's the phrase I want you to concentrate on. We'll have to do a whole sermon series on that to explain those two points. Here's, here's what I want you to concentrate on. Look at this. He learned obedience through what he suffered. You do not worship and love a Savior without suffering. You worship and love and trust in and believe and pray in the name of a Savior who experienced the deepest, greatest 
suffering that any human being ever experienced. And he experienced it on your behalf. He didn't deserve it. It was undeserved suffering. And, and look, there are a lot of people around the room who could talk today about undeserved suffering. There are people in this room who have suffered things that are not their fault. You know, sadly, most of the suffering in my life, my fault. But there are people in this room who have suffered deep, hard, grievous, painful things that are not their fault. That is hard suffering to endure. Jesus understands that. Jesus did not deserve any of his suffering. He was clothed in your weakness and bore a suffering that did not belong to him in order that you might be spared eternal suffering and be brought home to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin that you might become the righteousness of God in him. The author of Hebrews is saying this, the reason that Jesus can sympathize with you in anything is he has faced a kind of suffering that you will never face in the way that he has faced it. And he has faced it for you. He, he, he was appointed to do this. And so when you say, but Lord, my sin, I'm ashamed of my sin. How can Jesus possibly have any sympathy with me in my sin? And, and the author of Hebrews says, child, don't you know that that's what he came for? He came because of that sin. He doesn't despise you in that sin. A, a number of years ago, the, um, Furman University used to sponsor what was called the Furman Greenville Fine Arts Series. And Furman and some civic folks in Greenville would bring in major artists to do musical performances. And on one occasion, they brought in a world-famous pianist. And he was amazing. He was absolutely amazing. And so my job was to drive him back to the airport and so I thought, okay, I'll put on, that was back when you still had FM radios in the car. And so I turned to the classical station in Greenville. You know, I thought, okay, he's a, he's a classical pianist. He'll want to listen to classical music. And so I had on the classical station and there's a pianist playing. I thought, oh, this is perfect. World famous classical pianist listening to wonderful classical music. And we're, we're in the car for about 30 seconds. And he says, would you turn that off? Yes, sir. Sure. And, and then he says this, all I can hear is the mistakes. All I can hear is the mistakes. Now, number one, what a miserable way to go through life. Okay, that's a miserable way to go through life. But here, here's, here's what I want you to see. That is not how Jesus thinks about you. That is not how Jesus thinks about you. He, he doesn't say, all I can see is the failure. All I can see are the mistakes. All I can see is the sin. He came here for that reason, because he loves you. There's no contempt in Jesus for you. 
He came to suffer to set you free from that sin. And just, just think about this for a second. You cannot get victory over an unforgiven sin. You can't get victory over an unforgiven sin. So the only victory you've ever had over any sin in your life is because of what we just sang about, the blood of Jesus. That's the only reason you have any victory over any sin is because of the blood of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to you, child, I do not have contempt for you because of your sin. I know what it's like to live in your skin. I know what it's like to be tempted. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to hear God say no. And I came to do all of those things so that you could be forgiven and freed. Don't look me in the eyes and tell me I don't know what it's like. Don't look me in the eyes and tell me that I can't possibly sympathize with you in your weakness. I understand things about your weakness that you don't understand, and I love you anyway. I mean, that's really the extraordinary thing about Jesus, isn't it? He knows everything about us. Everything that we fear those closest to us to know about us. He knows all of those things. And he doesn't despise us. And he doesn't forsake us. And he doesn't have contempt for us. But he sympathizes with us. Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses. It's an extraordinary thing. So what should you do? Keep on believing in Jesus. Keep on. If if there's any hope for us sinners, it's in Jesus. It's not in us. It's not even in other sinners. it's, It's wonderful to bump into other sinners who can say to us, me too. Me too. I've I've stumbled and fallen in that sin. And, and they, they can be empathetic, but they can't deliver us from sin. Jesus can. They can be empathetic, but they can't forgive us of sin. Jesus can. Keep on believing in Jesus, and don't stop going to God in prayer. Draw near to the, it's the throne of grace after all. You're drawing near to the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment for your sin, but the throne of God's grace to you, even in the face of your sin and because of your sin and in spite of your sin. Draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses. We need to believe that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us a Savior who sympathizes with our weaknesses. We need that so badly. Now, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, help us to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.